0: Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, with myself, Will Page, and the independent analyst, Richard Kramer. So, management consultants are known for drawing 2x2 two two matrices, being able to frame things in a very simple 2x2 two two format. We're going to play on that with our title this week. We're going to not talk about 2x2, two two. it's going to be 2 plus 2, which, if I went to school back in the time of Henry VIII, was equal to 4. But this week's podcast is called 2 plus 2 equals 2. And we're going to be exploring the current craze in the mergers and acquisitions going on just now and asking, do they actually create additional value? Or is it the case that 2 plus 2 does equal 2? Back in a moment. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble with myself, Will Page, and the independent analyst, Richard Kramer. Richard, welcome along. Good to be back, Will. Let's get into this one here. It it does seem like we're going through another feeding frenzy in mergers and acquisitions. The corporate development teams and companies will be working every hour of the day, every day of the week, You know, looking at shopping up companies like their Pac-Man. I want to hear from you in terms of what's the driving force for this huge splurge in mergers and acquisitions that's going on right now?
1: Well, there's a, a range of forces there, and I'd say the starting point is that the grass is really always going to be greener on the outside. Whenever a company is missing a feature, a product, feels that what it has to offer is incomplete in some way, they face a make or buy decision. They can either roll up their sleeves, spend more on product development or R&D or what have you, and, and pull together the solution, or they can go buy a competitor or something off the shelf, or even a small company that has some talent that might be able to build it for them. And that's where the seduction of MA comes in. Now, if you look at some of the research around m and it's very conclusive. There was one meta-study that was done looking at 50,000 transactions and hundreds of academic studies, and guess what? It turned out that in over 80% of the cases, you didn't have a positive result on the performance of the two merged companies, that the two plus two didn't equal four, it equaled <laughs> less than four.
0: <laughs> so what we're saying here is we're spending an awful lot of money, presumably on lawyers and analysts, etc., but we're not actually generating any new money for that money that goes out.
1: Yeah, and that part of the reason for that is simply that the new money that comes back in has to be judged on a very long time scale. And all those investment bankers and lawyers and people who take the fees out of the transaction, they take them right away. And so a lot of times the proof of the value of M&A is a negative one, is, my goodness, if we didn't do this, we'd really be in trouble. We'd be subscale.
0: We'd have fallen by the wayside.
1: And therefore, we get encouraged to do it. But one of the key reasons that all of those transactions on balance, tend to destroy value, is the tendency to overpay. And we can talk about the conflicts of interest and the incentives for both the the company that's making the purchase and the company that's getting bought, and the people in the middle, as to why those transactions tend to take place at prices that are just eye-popping.
0: So I'm feeling that, and this incentive structure is something we keep on coming back to when we're trying to explain the causes and consequences of bubble trouble. But let's stick with what you're talking about there in terms of how people think, not what's on the spreadsheets, essentially, but what's in their minds. It sounds to me there is a psychological aspect to all of this, and... We hear a lot about FOMO, fear of missing out. And I think this is, you know, we're doing a podcast here for irony's sake. In the podcast market, there's a fear of missing out. What? You've got a big company and you don't have a podcast strategy? You've got to go acquire one.
1: As I said, the grass is always going to be greener on the outside. And the companies that you're looking to buy have one tendency that I've observed dozens and dozens of times in my 20 plus years as an analyst, which is from the outside, you see an unstoppable juggernaut, a company that has everything going for it, that is every bit as good as its own marketing.
0: Which could be talking your own book. It could be the charade of the earnings call. It could be all those factors that we've already played through, Absolutely,
1: But on the inside, as we all know, in every organization, you see the dysfunctionalities, the incompetencies, the living on past uh, promise as opposed to the future stuff that you're going to create. You see the missed deadlines and, and the internal politics. And that dirty laundry is rarely on public view. There is always a tendency to ascribe magical properties or thinking to someone on the outside. And to quote the Wizard of Oz, if I only had a brain, if I only had something else that would make me complete. And that oftentimes is what people look for in those acquisitions. It's going to be the thing that I buy that solves the problem. If I only had this, everything would be fine. And it's always faster and easier to buy that than to go through the painstaking process of building what you don't have.
0: So it's almost as simple as keeping up with the Joneses. If your next door neighbor's got that new household feature, or that new feature in their garden, you got to have it too. So there's that fear of missing out, drive to kind of keep pace with the competition through acquisition strategy. So let's turn to the the value of these deals. You've got a willing buyer, you've got a willing seller, and you've got a transaction. What do you see happening with the transactional value of deals that we're seeing happening right now in this crazy period during lockdown where stock prices have rallied, markets seem to be overheating, risks on inflation? What do we see happening there? Well,
1: the one thing that's clear in almost all of these cases, is that someone in the middle, typically the bankers and the advisors, have an incentive to increase the overall value because they're being paid as a percentage of the deal. They're not getting a flat fee. Hey, if Company A buys company B for a hundred or two hundred, we're gonna get paid the same. They might be getting three or seven percent of the deal or two percent of the deal, but the larger the deal is, the more they get paid. So they have an incentive to increase the deal price. The seller obviously wants to get the largest price possible and try to secure the largest portion of that in, in hard assets, in cash, as opposed to getting equity in the merged entity. The buyer is going to feel very insecure, especially if they think that there's someone else that's bidding against them for the very same asset. And that's oftentimes the situation where companies not only overpay, but manage to overlook obvious flaws or issues that should be surfaced in due diligence, but just get swept under the carpet in the rush to to buy this magic thing that's going to transform their business or help them maintain their competitive position.
0: So you do remind me of, in auction theory, you have the winner's curse, which is if you win an auction, you're a real sucker because nobody is willing to pay as much for that item as yourself. Absolutely.
1: The, the other thing that's absolutely critical here is, like any marriage, like any transaction, you're always going to underestimate the challenge of integration. How many people get a pet home and they realize, oh, geez, we didn't get a litter box for the cat. We didn't realize how often we'd have to take the dog out for a walk. And whether it's integrating in terms of company cultures, and I think you mentioned it Very interestingly, with bringing up two different companies that were suggested that they ought to get together, and you said, well, geez, I couldn't think of two companies that have more different or distinct corporate cultures, or the methods of the business, whether it's they're using different sorts of accounting software, whether they run their businesses in a different way, merging all those together, I liken it to imagine two toothbrushes and having to put them together and marry up all the bristles. But oftentimes, it's not a a few (laughs) dozens of bristles on your toothbrush, but thousands and tens of thousands of employees that need to be brought together and work in the same way. And that's always underestimated.
0: Interesting. So let's just recap here. So we've got the, the point you make at the very start there about underestimating the challenge of integrating companies. And that You know, it's clearly staring you in the face, but sometimes you don't see that because you've got this fear of missing out. And this fear of missing out often leads you to overpaying. And then back to this overarching point for me, what happens going forward? What happens when the deal is done? The investment analysts are all paid off. The lawyers are all paid off. And you have these two entities, bedfellows, as it were, trying to work out how to get along. And I I could... (laughs) see the irony of a situation of after the merger, spending gazillions on dollars on outsourcing projects to take what you essentially merged and rip it out of the company and stick it well, over...
1: this is where one of the big promises of M&A is that the two companies will find synergies. You bring two companies together, they both have <laughs> HR departments and finance departments and accounting and legal departments. And you might be able to run both the companies with one of those departments. But what typically kicks off is a six to 12-month bun fight as to whose department and whose staff from whose department actually still has their job. And which one is the most effective at managing accounting or HR or... Which one is the buyer and which one is the seller and is the buyer the one who gets to make all those decisions?
0: And that's not rational decision making, that's political infighting and political infighting doesn't produce a conclusion that you said absolutely set out to achieve.
1: and you cannot underestimate in large companies the influence of political bureaucracy and culture in saying, you know what, my department we have 1,100 people working for us. And so if I'm the head of that department, I feel pretty big and important. And if someone comes along and says, well, you know, we've bought your company and we want to keep a few of your star performers, but the rest of you can go, well, I'm going to do everything I can to fight that because I'm out of a job if I don't fight my corner there. And so the incentives for each individual are oftentimes very different than the incentives from the two merged entities getting together, and they're all chasing these ephemeral concept called synergies. The idea that two plus two will equal five, but the cost base of two plus two is going to equal three or two or even one.
0: That gets us to the end of part one, where we've understood, you know, the reason why we have this activity, essentially a fear of missing out. And the reason why a lot of this mergers and acquisitions often go wrong, because you underestimate the challenges. And also reasons why they overpay, because there's an incentive structure, again, an Achilles heel of bubble trouble, an incentive structure where people are getting paid up front on the value of the deal. Uh, it's like buying and selling a house. Do you want an agent on the buy side and an agent on the sell side, therefore pay twice the fee structure? In part two, I wanna look at the good, bad, and ugly of mergers and acquisitions. And then, as we always do on Bubble Trouble, explore some smoke signals to help you, the listener, spot when these deals could be going sour. Back in a moment. Back again in part 2 of Bubble Trouble. This time we're confusing the mathematics, we're going to call this one 2 plus 2 equals 2. Not 4, but 2. That is, when two companies merge, no value is created. In fact, some value is potentially destroyed. But let's wheel back on the mess for a second. You could have a good merger acquisition where 2 plus 2 equals 5. You could have a bad one where 2 plus 2 equals 4. You could have a, an ugly one where 2 plus 2 does equal 2. We can't generalize. Let's explore each three lanes here independently. Richard, can you give us an example where things have worked out really well? So a textbook example of this is how to perform a merger, or this is how to conclude an acquisition.
1: Sure. I think one of the best scenarios for M&A is when a large company that is already a well-run entity buys a smaller one in a promising, evolving area. And let's go back to, I think it was 2006, somewhere around then, where Google paid a billion dollars for this little company called YouTube. Now, over the ensuing 15 years or so, Google was able to provide tremendous support in terms of technical expertise and infrastructure and data centers and so forth and to allow YouTube to flourish into the 2 billion-plus daily user property it is today or monthly active user property it is today. So you had a large company that knew it wanted to get into a new emerging area. You had a small company that was really a handful of people the same when Facebook bought Instagram, and could take those assets and give them the backing and support to allow them to absolutely fulfill their promise. And when you're buying a small company and bringing it into a larger one, you're not bringing all those other overheads and all those toes that are going to be stepped on if that company you've bought has its HR, its accounting, it's finance departments that all need to be unwound.
0: That's a great example of, of what good likes. The Google-YouTube deal, which you mentioned there, has happened in 2006. Interestingly, at the same time, Microsoft got fined half a billion dollars by the European Commission for abusing their dominance with Windows Media Player. And I just love that story of the European Commission's thought that Windows Media Player was a dominant entity in the Internet at the same time that YouTube took off. A case of the horse has already bolted, perhaps. Mm. That's good. So we now have good. Let's, let's go to number two, which is bad. Give us the example where two plus two failed to equal four, uh, where well, the deal went sour. I,
1: there are many, many, many examples of that. Too many, really, to mention. But you have those that are verging on the... Well, it's either bad or ugly, whether it's Bayer when they bought Monsanto and inherited a massive liability for the weed killer product. that turned out to be cancerous, not just for the users, but for Bayer's balance sheet. Or when HP bought Autonomy and ended up uh, realizing that a lot of the revenue that Autonomy had booked was fictitious, and you're still now a decade later working on an extradition case for the former CEO of autonomy, whether he goes back to the US to face charges there. And so in those cases, you see that the company's fear of missing out, the company's eagerness to do a deal, blinded it to the potential liabilities. And they didn't do the kind of due diligence that you would have expected. And I think in many cases, you'd be able to see that scenario where a chief executive, is so eager to be bestriding the markets like a colossus and doing the deal that's changing everybody's perception of their company, and they overlook the most basic, glaring problems that they could be inheriting.
0: So that's bad, and now I want to rev up the Richard Kramer rant machine and hear what ugly mean, When have you seen a merger or an acquisition which simply just didn't make sense, a complete face-par moment where you have to kind of walk around the block and say, what on earth are these two corporate entities doing trying to perform this deal?
1: So one that I can mention because it has now been, well, not finalized but unwound, is AT&T buying Time Warner. Now, there is a long and storied tradition of telcos, which, at their heart, are fundamental utility businesses.
0: They are. They are. They're nothing more.
1: Well, let us not denigrate the humble utility because we rely on them every day for our electricity and water and gas and phone service and broadband and so forth. But when these companies make acquisitions to try to be something that, they have no cultural background in delivering, namely entertainment services. Or on a much smaller scale, Verizon having bought AOL and then Yahoo, putting them together, and then finally selling them a few years later to a private equity buyer. It's the realization that, hey, we should never have done these deals in the first place. But of course, it's very difficult for the architects of those deals, often the same management that's defenestrating them, to admit that, and to admit that they made a mistake, they overpaid, or they got into an area where it was really outside of their core expertise to manage.
0: I remember a colleague and an expert in the telco space once referred to one of the biggest telcos in the world as, please don't confuse these businesses as organized companies. They're all just separate entities buying in their own little entities, and just headless chickens inside a corporate brand, as it were so good bad and ugly and i can see what we discussed in part one resonating there the fear of missing out underestimating the complexity and the tendency to overpay almost like a carousel happening causing some of these deals to go sour i think we've got to bring this podcast to a conclusion by doing what we always do which is give our listeners those smoke signals a couple of smoke signals of how to spot when a big merger and acquisition being announced in the media has got the potential to turn sour. And I think media is important here because often these deals are kept secret right up to the last minute. There's a very carefully planned PR strategy to signal to the market there's a deal about to be concluded, perhaps a a game of playing fast and loose with the regulators. Can we get the deal done before there's an investigation? So we're seeing a lot of this happening now. How can the listeners spot the words to be careful of when we're reading about mergers and acquisitions?
1: So I think the first thing to be skeptical of is when companies talk about M&A being transformative. <laughs> when you have all these examples of which there are a legion of large companies buying a small company with very promising technology, bringing it in-house and nurturing it, that's a terrific example of m and I think you have lots and lots of, of of small companies that have been advanced because they got the resources of a large company behind them. But when a company is making a purchase to transform themselves, to become something they are not, that's always really dangerous. It's like a couple that's squabbling all the time saying, well, if we just bought the house down the block and move there, we'll be happier.
0: So transformative smoke signal number one, what else should we be looking out for in the the language being used to describe this very, very active market?
1: Given all the accounting issues we've talked about before and, and all the way in which the cards are held in the hands of the companies themselves, you have to be very cautious about discounting quote unquote synergies. The idea that you put two companies together and they'll be able to take out whole layers of costs in both those companies and down the road, you'll be able to run the same business with half the number of people in accounting and finance and resources and all the other functional areas of the business.
0: And this presumably is just one spreadsheet that you're not allowed to interrogate with one assumption about what that values of synergies could be. That's going to have a huge impact on how the merger or the acquisition is going to be perceived from the outset.
1: Well, there are cost synergies, which are very rational. You could say, hey, we've got two headquarters and we can sell one or we can get out of our lease over time for one of them and we can have some cost savings. That's fine. But the revenue synergies of adding two distinct products together and selling more of both of them is always very difficult to realize. And you see that with product companies of all sorts, where they say, if we just add another arrow to our quiver, add another product to our lineup, that will unlock the potential of all of our products, and we'll be able to do all this cross-selling. But I think, as you know, (laughs) bundling stuff isn't always better for the consumer. Sometimes they want to pick and choose what choices they have to make with all of these different areas.
0: So now I'm beginning to feel that you can overestimate the revenue synergies, but underestimate the complexity of the cost synergies. And those two variables, as it were, can move you in the wrong direction. One last word I wanted to throw at you there, and it's one that we've discussed in the past, is this weird and wacky concept of goodwill. Mm. Where does that feature an immersion acquisition? Is that something that's getting traded as well?
1: Absolutely, and goodwill typically will be the price you pay over the assets of the company that you're buying. So if a company has a lot of land and buildings or has a lot of intellectual property and, and, and assets, whether tangible or intangible, you can value those fairly clearly. But if the company also relies on the regular custom of their users or the value of the brand that they built up over time, that's not necessarily something you can take to the bank. And more importantly, they value the goodwill of their employees. And that is always underestimated. And any time you put two companies together and you might have six or 12 months of delay while all the T's get crossed and I's get dotted on all the legal documents bringing these companies together, it creates tremendous uncertainty for the staff of both of those companies that have to do the work and keep the plates spinning while the business is going. And you lose the goodwill of your staff. And by doing that, a lot of times these people are going to be fearful. Am I one of those cost synergies? Or do I have to come up with a clever idea how to sell this other guy's product, which he couldn't do himself or herself?
0: So again, you can overestimate the value of goodwill, often to justify that fear of missing out price tag that you put together, but underestimate how quickly that good can turn bad as the political infighting happens through the complexity of costs and integrations of operating systems and company cultures. Last thing is just to kind of start from a blank sheet of paper. Let's assume we're in bubble trouble. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. Let's assume that bubble bursts over the next coming months or years. Let's assume there's a big shakeout and people are thinking, my God, why did we try that merger? Why did we even attempt that acquisition? How would you do things differently? What what simple steps would you apply to say there's a more rational way to approach mergers and acquisitions? There's a better way to make two plus two actually equal five. Not four, not three, not two, but five to extract value out of a deal.
1: Again, I would say almost always the successful deals are where large companies buy very small companies and nurture and incubate them. And where you have very large companies merging with other very large companies, they both bring all of their politics and baggage and history and processes to the table. And it makes it very difficult to integrate them. And you have to contend with the cultures. And we haven't even explored the notion of cross-cultural mergers. And, and you know, the companies, as you know from your former employer, will have very different cultures in one office in one country than in another office in another country and bringing those cultures of companies together across borders is fiendishly difficult
0: well maybe just to wrap this week's podcast up uh, my first week working for a swedish firm hr told me that in sweden if there's three people in a meeting so let's assume it's myself richard kramer and our wonderful producer eric Newsom. And there's a disagreement, which myself and Eric Newsom get our way, but Richard Kramer left out in the cold. You have to have a second meeting to ensure that Richard Kramer is still on board and part of the team. (laughs) And I just don't think that's going to be working out on Wall Street in New York. My game is your pain. So it's an example of cultures. Richard, this has been a joy to listen to on this one. And you couldn't get a more pivotal topic to explore. So this one's going to run and run. Uh, This has been Bubble Trouble. I'm Will Page with Richard Kramer, our independent analyst. And remember, this week's bubble is next week's trouble. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we'd encourage you to follow the podcast wherever you listen. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom and Jesse Baker at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. See you next time.